Science applies to just about every aspect of our experience on Earth, whether it is physically, biologically, or socially. Our thoughts and actions create a process that affects the world around us. And it is explaining that process in its most basic form that we discover where science meets life. I'm Jacob Rueda. And I'm Joseph Arrington. Join us as we go on a journey to understand what science is and how it affects us. This is where science meets life. Hello, and welcome to this inaugural episode of Where Science Meets Life. I'm your host, Jacob Rueda. And I'm Joseph Arrington. This is a brand new podcast, which will delve into a number of different topics from a science-based perspective. We hope to have discussions that will create a basic understanding about how these topics both apply to and affect the general public. Some of what we'll be discussing throughout the course of this podcast series include topics surrounding the science behind medicine, biology, and sociology, as well as discussions diving into academia, institutions of research, processes and understanding of each of these topics, and most importantly, the various applications and their significance to the public, or basically, you and me, everyone, all of us. But before we dive deeper into these discussions, let's do a little introduction. Jacob? Well, let's see. A little bit about my background. I was born in Quito, Ecuador in 1976. I am a person who is absolutely not embarrassed about my age. I do not hide it. My father is also from Ecuador, and my mother is from a town called San Sebastián in Puerto Rico. And we have been living in here in the United States since 1983. So I was seven. And the majority of that time has been right here in Utah. And I started writing at a young age and developed a passion for writing while I was in school. So I excelled in writing book reports and English papers. So I was really quite a nerd when it came to that kind of thing. After graduating from high school, I attended Salt Lake Community College and I studied photography. And at the time, I was inspired to be a photographer by the works of a Dutch photographer named Anton Corbin. Now, he was a photographer who is famous for some of his uh, rock and roll photography featuring bands like Airy Up in the Slits, Craftwork, among some of the other more famous. U2 was another big subject of his. But I've mostly been inspired by his photographs of the band Depeche Mode, who also happens to be my favorite band of all time. Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So the first publication that I wrote for was that I can remember was back in 1999 when I wrote for a publication called Salt Lake Underground or Slug Magazine. And at that time, Slug Magazine just covered uh, local like hardcore metal bands and uh, some other kind of more obscure sounds from the Salt Lake City underground, as it were, hence the name. Now, in 2002... I moved to uh, Los Angeles and I lived there off and on for about 10 years. And while I was there, I started blogging around 2007 and 2008. I think at that time, blogging was still a relatively new thing. 
And when I wrote, I wrote about whatever issue I felt was pressing at the moment, regardless of whether it was important or whether it was in the news or not. So I just wrote for the sake of writing about something. So that's what I did. I moved back in Utah. I moved back to Utah rather in 2012. And uh, in 2006, 2016, I, I published my first book. It was called The Perspective Essays. That book was a collection of blog writings from the previous four years. So from 2012 to 2016 was pretty much the range for those writings. And I have to say, it was a rather whimsical but ambitious effort to publish something. But this was written before I had any journalistic training. So it was basically that book and actually the suggestion of a friend of mine who suggested that I go into journalism. So that is how I got into it. Um, I went back to school in 2018 and I attended Utah Valley University, first studying documentary filmmaking and then moving on to communication and journalism. Some of the work that I have done there was included in the student newspaper and I covered a couple of different topics, one of them being the opioid epidemic and the state of Utah's response to the opioid, opioid crisis, along with immigration to the United States and its impact on the student body and their families. I transferred to the University of Utah in 2019, still pursuing a communication degree. Some of the projects that I worked on there were published through special classes and, of course, capstone courses. Those projects included articles on the history and response to the use of Native American symbols, by the University of Utah, as well as other sports teams as well. The other one was mental health access in Salt Lake City's West Side neighborhoods. Another special project that I did was a four-episode group podcast on the effect the COVID-19 pandemic had on student life at the university. I got a Bachelor's of Science in Communication from the University of Utah in 2021. Um, I received special recognition from the U.S. Department of Communication my graduation year, and I was also admitted into the Kappa Tau Alpha Honor Society for Journalism and Mass wow. Communication students. So, Thanks. yeah, yeah, that was a very special honor. There was a special mention in the uh, in the graduation, and um, yeah, no, and the they did a the department wrote a thing about me, so I was <laughs> I was very honored. I was I was really honored. That As was you should. A, That's amazing. Yeah, no, it was a wonderful wonderful recognition. Some other uh, the, some of the other journalistic works that I've done, two publications that I've worked for are the West View, which is a community newspaper covering Salt Lake City's West Side neighborhood. It's also where I was fortunate enough to meet Mr. Arrington. So that was <laughs> that was very, uh, what's the word, serendipitous. So I'm very happy about that. Some of the articles I wrote, I covered a protest against police shootings in the Salt Lake City area. And I also covered the community's response to a visit from Dr. Jill Biden to an area junior high school. I also wrote for Utah Business Magazine, which is an industry magazine covering local and state entrepreneurship, innovation, and business. Among the topics that I covered were the local Hispanic business, particularly a business owner who owned the largest cleaning supply company in the state, along with LGBTQ plus ownership here in Utah. As far as local TV news, I worked for ABC4 as a digital content writer covering local and statewide news. 
as far as radio experience, I worked for KSL News Radio as a reporter covering local and statewide stories, including weather, politics, and Utah history. And now we move on to Joseph Arrington. Thank you very much for having me on, Jacob. I, I received your, your message on things that you wanted me to cover and talk about myself. And some of the bullet points that you had, it just made me wonder at first, like, did you like, did I send him my, my, my CV, my resume? I mean, just, uh, it was very in-depth and I was very impressed with uh, how deep you went into some of my background and some of the things you asked me to speak about. Now that I think about it though, with your very impressive resume and, and prowess in being uh, an investigative journalist, I, I shouldn't have been surprised. It should have been par for the course. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I was born in Texas, uh, 1986. Yeah. I'm a little bit younger than you, Jacob. When I was five going on six, somewhere in that range, my family moved to Utah and it was just my mother and my father and myself. We were a small family. At the time she was pregnant with my only sibling. His name is Taylor. So yeah, my father is also from Texas. And, I want to um, ask you, I'm sorry, I, yeah. I hate to interview you. What part of Texas are you from? Yeah, it's a it's a small place called, well, I was born in Gladewater, but I was raised in Gilmer. It's a very small place. It's near Fort Worth in that area in Texas. I have right. really uh, good memories. Just like, you know, I'm young, five years old, whatever. So I have just flashes of memories. But I remember on Sundays, we would go driving and we would go pick blackberries and stuff because they're... I was told it's almost a weed out there. So uh, I just remember going up and we had blackberries everywhere. And uh, we had a house that was on the outskirts of a forest. And so I remember a lot of times me just running out in the middle of the forest and playing and being barefoot. And yeah, just some really good memories of of that time. But yeah, all good things come to an end. (laughs) No, but I do claim Utah uh, as my hometown. My mother is actually a native to Brazil. She moved to the U.S. when she was about 21 years old. Yeah, so I I did grow up bilingual and I speak Portuguese fluently. However, I mean, in our household, it was my father would be speaking Portuguese to my mom. My mom would be speaking a mix of both two, my brother and myself, and we would reply only in English. And then my dad would only speak to us in English. So it was just like this this thing. Because I, I didn't practice until I was a bit older, I developed this really... I hate it. I hate my accent when I'm speaking Portuguese, but it is what it is. See, I can't um, hear it when you, because I've heard you speak Portuguese and I can't hear it. Oh, but then again, I haven't heard enough Portuguese to really tell. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe I've just uh, tarnished what you think Portuguese should sound like. <laughs> oh, no, you haven't. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, I lived in, in Utah. Uh, since that point, I ended up going to Enzyme College. At the time, it was LDSBC. And I got my associate's degree there. And during that time, I met an amazing young lady. She was going to college at Utah State University, very far from here. <laughs> but yeah, we've been married for over 13 years. She's the love of my life. Can't do, even imagine. She's a great lady. Oh, she's, she's a great lady. Yeah, we have six wonderful children together, uh, four girls and two boys. The four girls were right in a row and their age ranges are from two to 12. And um, not a lot of people know this, but we have another on the way. Uh, I know wow. a lot of people, whenever I say, hey, we're waiting for our, our seventh, they just, I've, why? <laughs> no, but uh, it's, uh, yeah, we, we we love our family. We, we love the opportunity. It's It's been fantastic. So during that time, I, I went and she finished her freshman year at Utah State. And, and then we got married and we moved down. I took a year off from school just to, you know, 
live the married life. And after that, I, I continued. I went back to school. She did too. And she transferred over to Enzyme College as well. And we both received our associate's degrees there just in general studies. Then I transferred and she she took a pause for a bit. I transferred and I went to the University of Utah. And during the time that you were writing your, your book, I was doing my undergraduate at the University of Utah was during that same time frame and ended up obtaining a Bachelor of Science in Exercise and Sports Science. And I, I minored, minored in pediatric clinical research from the University of Utah School of Health. And that minor, it included a, an amazing opportunity in which I was, for a year, I was an intern doing research and gathering like bio samples and whatnot from labor and delivery from primary children's hospital. It's a pediatric hospital here in Salt Lake City, Utah. And uh, yeah, it was a fantastic opportunity. I loved, I fell in love with healthcare. And during that time, I also saw the kind of how business and the intersection between healthcare and, and business and medicine and all that stuff kind of influences each other. And I got very fascinated with that. And so when I was finishing my bachelor's, I started applying and uh, I applied to, and I accepted an invitation to pursue MBA training from currently Westminster College, but they're having a name change in the next few months. So Westminster University is Gore School of Business. But my various experiences in healthcare and research, they keyed me in on, on a very fascinating topic in which we talk about innovation adoption in medicine. And, uh, how, like what lags, what stops innovations from being adopted, or what can even increase that rate. And that led me to pursue a doctorate of business administration from Drexel University. That was uh, in 2020. And since then, I've been doing that research and uh, I'll be defending my dissertation in the next few months. So I'm really excited about that. Along the way, I was blessed to be a part of various research teams that helped me get to the point that I would embark on getting the training to become an independent researcher. And uh, these research teams were led by some amazingly talented investigators, most of them up on the medical school campus here at the University of Utah. Uh, and that led to me being the co-author on a few different published academic papers, all revolving around health and medically related topics. So as my career evolved over the years, I mean, while going to school, I was working full time. I noticed things, especially when I started getting more into academia, when I was shifting away from industry, getting more into academia and in healthcare, I noticed something with uh, all these really awesome ideas popping up. But this knowledge that I saw that people were creating with their research projects, sometimes I started thinking of them and I, turn, I coined a term uh, and I call it a, like a CV decoration. And for those who don't know, a CV is a curriculum vitae which is like the fancy academic version of a resume. And uh, I just started thinking that I saw so I was involved in bench to bedside at the University of Utah, like 40, 50, 60 teams, at least of students creating these amazing ideas, creating medical devices. But then a lot of those ideas stopped once that competition was over. And they, I mean, they were putting on their CVs and like going to graduate school, whatever, but there wasn't moving forward. And so I saw that and I started thinking there has to be like, there has to be something you have to like put that and apply it and do something with the knowledge that you have. Can you please explain what bench to bedside mean? Because yeah, I'm, sure, yeah. I'm for, for people who don't know what that means. So when you're doing research, a lot of times they say that to make a medical device or something like that, it's on the bench like with the engineers and they're working on the bench and they're making their prototypes and everything and they're building it up. And then there is this transition from the bench and the whole bunch of things that happen in the middle. And then eventually gets to the bedside 
of patience. And so this whole concept of moving things from bench to bedside, it really hit me hard. It was something like, you know, I see all these amazing things happening. And so I went through and I, I sort of like, Hey, you know what? I, I want to help. I see that there's this like certain sleeping disorders, like sleep paralysis, sleepwalking, things like that, that aren't as heavily researched and don't have uh, as many different solutions. So I, I made a team of budding engineers and we met up and we, we started working on this and we've been doing it for a few years now. And uh, we created a startup company called Beacon Sleep Solutions. And uh, that endeavor amazingly led to us securing a patent earlier this year issued by the USPTO, which is the, the governing body in the United States that says, hey, this is a novel invention. So they, they issued and said that our invention was a, a novel creation. Outside of all that, like the academia and the professional stuff that I'm doing, I, I work a lot to serve my community. And uh, I put my non-medical business training to use by devoting myself to working in the nonprofit sector. And uh, I've done so on various boards of directors. And it gave me the ability to see up close and personal, like the impact that these organizations can have and how it can change people's lives. Uh, the majority of them are geared towards serving diverse populations who struggle for a number of reasons. And a few of those uh, I'm currently engaged with are, first of all, my my local Red Cross chapter. I'm on the board of directors there, and I'm currently the the mission chair. I'm currently the president of the West High Alumni Association. Our, our mission is to give out and actively fundraise for scholarships to ensure students who would normally be hard-pressed or completely unable to pursue post-high school training can have the ability to go to college and have resources and, and funding that we give them so that it becomes a real real option for them. I'm currently an executive committee member for the League of United Latin American Citizens, Utah chapter board of directors. And uh, I also currently serve on the National Executive Council, which is basically an advisory board for the American Physician Scientists Association. And along the way, I've been honored to have been invited and speak as a panel member at various different events or just be a, a keynote speaker or whatnot. And these range from speaking on the importance of having serving on nonprofit boards to speaking to students at university levels on how they can turn their graduate degrees into tools that help people in their community, as well as uh, talking uh, on the west side of Salt Lake City on how communities can band together to continue their path for a brighter future, just to, just to name a few. And I've also worked in academic campuses on universities, uh, but both at Drexel University and the University of Utah. I'm currently employed with Intermountain Medical Center. I work in operations specifically for those physician scientists, that, that group of people that I mentioned before. I work in operations specifically for them at that facility. And I'm also continuing running that biotech startup, Beacon Sleep Solutions. I had a, a brief stint as a chief operating officer for about a year of a physician's genetic startup. And then I, I worked in various non-medical industry roles as well. But personally, I mean, I'm a big sci-fi fan. Uh, so when I'm not studying or hanging out with my family, uh, enjoying their company, uh, while I work on other projects, I have like a show in the background on my phone or something. I just sit and listen to it and I watch when I can uh, and, and movies about that topic. Like some of the shows I love are Fringe, Continuum, the Sci-Fi Channel uh, series, 12 Monkeys. I love those shows. And I'm a big comedy fan. And of course, the superhero movies. Uh, I'm not tired of them yet. Love them. Keep cranking them out. Marvel, DC. I think they're all fantastic. It's fun. Uh, but yeah, so now that we've talked a little bit about ourselves and who we are, how we giving a roadmap on how we met and what led us here to be doing this podcast, we would like to speak a little bit about science, specifically, like, what is science, according to us, and like kind of define it for listeners moving forward. 
One of the points that I wanted to make with regards to that term is that I liken the term science to the term technology. Because in this day and age, when people say science or when people say technology, a particular image comes to their head as to what that is. Speaking from my own experience with science, I think of Petri dishes. I'm thinking of, you know what I'm saying? I'm thinking of beakers, people in lab coats, people in, as far as, you know, the word research is concerned. I think of the same thing. People with goggles on, you know. <laughs> you know? I was in the exact same position when I was. Right? Yeah, exact. And again, like with the word technology, what people think is technology they equate with electronics. So laptops, cell phones, software. You don't ever think of cars as being a technology or the motors inside them as a technology. We don't ever think of a tables incorporating technology, eyeglasses incorporating technology. You know what I'm saying? The wheel. Right. We have these really rather superficial understanding of of what science is what that term means and one of the things that and again your understanding of that has evolved over time because these ideas are formed from a very early age right mm -hmm. so we think about science as something of an abstract that we understand on a very superficial level but nothing beyond that I mean, would you agree with that assessment? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. So I know that when I was in school, I thought science is great, but I hate being tested on it. I don't like having to know what a bacilli do and and, and <laughs> what a stimuli is and, and all those words because they didn't mean anything to me. You know, I'm just like, these are just terms that I have to just know for the moment. And then once I'm done testing, I can forget about them. So there was a very, I think, very strong aversion to learning about science-based topics. And what I've discovered is that as far as the general public is concerned, science is, number one, only interesting if it's on a PBS or BBC Nature special. If David Attenborough isn't talking about it, <laughs> you know, it's not interesting. Yeah, the, <laughs> you know? the recent Chris Hemsworth Alzheimer's special oh, I, that went on yeah, national geographic just did a, a chris hemsworth special talking about alzheimer's and oh, all of a sudden now everybody's talking about genes and genetics and yeah it, it's sexy now right but you get this idea again because we hear it over and over and over again on these nature specials and whatever we get this idea that science is this fixed thing does that make sense oh yeah another misconception is that science only affects certain aspects of knowledge in biology, medicine, product development, etc. Science doesn't seem to leave that confine. Do you, do you, do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, this is a yeah, people just say like, oh, they're they're science and then there's my life. And, and then like <laughs> the the people with the with the goggles and the the white coats, they they go and they they do their thing and that makes them happy and then I'll go and continue doing my job and there's no intersection there. Exactly. Exactly. That there's no there's no link between what they're doing and how they're living. So 
Yeah, I think we're both in accordance that. And that's one of the reasons we're doing this is that's not quite the case. Exactly. Exactly. So another one, and now this, this is a big one, is the science versus religion debate or faith or religious faith that's been debated here, that's been debated there. There's people who are fixed on this idea or on this conclusion, whether it's science or whether it's faith, you know, religion. And I I don't think we're going to solve that here because you're a scientist, but you're also, you follow a, a religious faith. And so there are people who would say, well, that's contradiction because X, Y, Z. Do you get what I'm saying? Oh, 100%, yeah. I, I'm not a religious person. So some would say, okay, well, you know, you would be more susceptible to, not susceptible, but you'd be willing to reason better because you don't have this. Like, and I mean, it, there'd be all sorts of different discussions and perspectives on that. And like I said, we're not going to find the answer to that here. So we're just going <laughs> you know, to... At least not this episode. No, we're at least not this episode. No, absolutely <laughs> not. So another point is that science or what people perceive as science is too difficult to understand too many equations too much math and i'm i am not a math person by any stretch of the imagination okay and whenever i looked at a research paper and i saw all the calculations that it took to get the result or to get you know something in the research i just skip over that part i skip <laughs> over i'm like I don't understand that. Garbage. And down to the conclusion. Right, exactly. I, I was telling a friend of mine the other day, abstract introduction conclusion there. I know what's going on. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you something. It was uh, one of the first things they taught in my doctorate. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had somebody come in and he said, that's exactly how you should read the papers at first. Really? Um, yeah. He, he, well, he said to save. And I think part of it is the fact that we're in an executive program. And so all of us have full-time management jobs at least, I mean, there's lots of CEOs and whatnot in my program. And so uh, they were saying, you don't have time to go through and meticulously see all the methods. So uh, up front, at first, when you were learning about these things, read the title, read the introduction, skim through the rest of it, and then go to the conclusions. And then if it uh, if it pertains to what something that you were wanting to learn more about, then later on, take the time to, to see what's going on and, and dig deeper into it. Right. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. Really, the the middle part, uh, a part of that is so that other scientists can go and verify and say, hey, you know what? This all checks out. This all checks out. It is. I can replicate this and and I can even build off of it. And we'll talk about that in a, in a, in a later episode about uh, making sure that you can verify the, the findings are true. Of course, of course. <laughs> I think with everything that we just discussed, there is a stigma, I feel, towards science in that, and this is something, I think that goes back to something that you were saying earlier. There's science, and then there's me watching Netflix. There's me cooking. There's me going shopping. There's me going to a sporting event. Science, in, again, most people's understandings, is not relatable. And I think that again, adds to the stigma of science or maybe to even a a disparagement of science. One of the things that probably led to so much aversion during the initial stages of the COVID-19 pandemic to wearing masks or getting vaccines and, and stuff like that, the process was just too unrelatable. I can't say this is for sure. I'm just 
Yeah, exactly. Did you, I mean, you know what I'm trying to say? Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, science is a lot about digging in and like testing hypotheses, having educated guesses. And of course, this is from people who have sometimes multiple doctorates and they're making their, but still in the end, it's, it's guesses. And so they have to go and they test it out. They have an initial hypothesis, but it can't be certain until it's tested out. And all of a sudden you get the general public during pandemic or getting a peek behind the curtain and seeing this, this process. Like, oh, I, I thought you, you beaker guys, you guys had the, the, the knowledge and you just came up with the, the ideas and the answers right off the top of your heads. This is taking far too long. I don't know if I can trust you guys. Right. Well, it's not like that. <laughs> so I just think that disconnect is what creates the sort of disinterest. And like I said, an aversion to science, science as a whole has in its, in its applications is used in anything from in the civil world and in other non-medical situations so it it applies not just to the medical not just to the biological but also into the like i said the civil and other non-medical situations you know i mean i think we can look into all these different innovations and how they've completely changed our lives i mean cell phones for instance you and i both come from an era that we remember what life was like before the internet before smartphones Mm -hmm. and um Life is completely different now, and those gadgets that we carry around and and our, our personal assistants and whatnot, that was the result of of math and technology and and all the, all the different facets of STEM research with that lead and that's a huge impact on our lives. And so I think we take for granted, like you're saying, how these things do interact and affect how we end up living our lives. Right, and to bring it back to a more social application, understanding crime, understanding the rates of crime, poverty, economic imbalance. The causes uh, of those things. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it isn't like these just happens because some people just have it a, a really bad whatever. And, you know, some people are just lucky and some people just aren't. You know? <laughs> I mean, that's just if so. Only. Yeah, really. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's it goes so far beyond that. but. Scientific application and understanding will help us understand or does help us understand why elements of of this creates crime or why crime is so much. You know what I'm saying? There's just it's just more than just people in lab coats. I mean, there's social scientists that are out there working, trying to figure out why our society is the way that it is both economically, consciously, whatever, and, you know, what can be done to help it move past some of these negative points or the things that aren't working for us. It's just got wider applications that I think a lot of people don't realize are there. When I was doing my intern year at Primary Children's Hospital, what opened up my mind was seeing the, it was called the burden of histiocytosis. Histiocytosis is a, is a, kind of like cancer it's a it's a disorder it's a that people go through and um, i would go into the the department and and I, I was given this task to consent the parents as well as assent the parents that's the the terminology they use to get the permission from people you consent people over the age of 18 and then you assent minors 
into this research. And at first, when I first heard about it, I thought, oh, I was going to learn about all the, the science behind it, like the, the pathophysiology, like what, how it's happening, what molecules are interacting in the body and whatnot. It was far from it. I was going through there and I was speaking with the family and finding out how this was affecting their lives. The University of Utah Primary Children's Hospital, they were one of the biggest centers in the surrounding region to get treatment for this. So we had a lot of people traveling from out of state, traveling to come. And some people were taking off work. People were trying to rent cars or, or use their own car to get here to, to Salt Lake City. And it was taxing on them. And it, it, it went in there and there was different questions about how it was affecting their child's schooling how it was affecting their own like interpersonal lives. It was a, a fantastic research study. And that was the first thing that helped me see like, oh my gosh, like scientists care about how we're feeling. <laughs> they, they, they care that like, it's so for me, it was, it, it humanized it so much. I, I, at that point is my, my younger self. It was, I don't know if it was naivete or just, I, I didn't know it could, because just like you were saying it, there's this, preconceived notion in society of what research is and uh, i mean that that got me in a path and now like my I'm, I'm hoping to specialize and be a, a member of the health systems research budding field and just look at how to improve operations and improve processes improve things for uh, everybody working in healthcare. and that doesn't require me to have any beakers or or chemicals or anything like that um, no lab coats yeah, no lab coats, no lab coats. Um, okay. <laughs> but yeah, so it's there the, the research is and like what you were saying about what you what you think, you think of technology when you think of the word science. For me, I see uh, the term as saying like what can be measured and how can we have a process of measuring the outcomes of things that happen. And if it's measurable, then that is something that we can investigate in science and see if we can improve upon it and see if we can progress our society. And if, if you can measure it, then that's something that can be investigated and researched in science. I want to talk a little bit about the misconceptions of science, because again, with that aversion to it, there is added some misconceptions of it as well, that you can find the answer to everything with science. Science can explain everything. Before we started this podcast, I remember I was talking with Joseph and <laughs> he asked me if we would ever talk about outer space. And I would like to, <laughs> but I don't know that much about outer space to, <laughs> to, to, well, I don't, there's a lot of topics that I'm unfamiliar with, but Outer space is definitely one of them. But there's a phenomenon in the sun that that happens in the sun where it's like there's a region of the sun that's cooler. It, it, it's in the corona or somewhere like that. It's our scientific knowledge as, as we have it today cannot explain why this is the case. Now, if there is somebody out there who knows what I'm talking about and can check me on it, please do. But there is just there's some weird temperature phenomenon in that's going around the sun that our modern scientific knowledge cannot explain. That does not mean that science will not be able to explain that at a future time. 
In fact, there's a rather notable example of how scientific knowledge evolved to be able to explain a phenomenon. Yeah, we, we go back into uh, the science of the, like the 1800s. We have uh, Ignace Semmelweis, and I, I'm probably butchering his name. Right, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, he uh, he observed with the knowledge they had at the time that there was some connection, correlation. There was something happening with women passing away after birth and the fetal mortality was high and he couldn't figure out and he started in, in just a long story short he started saying hey you know what i think it's because we're not washing our hands and with like specific stuff to help kill and he he proposed like it was the the initial outing that led to the germ hypothesis and like at that, that time they're like that, that sounds ridiculous and some of the physicians had their egos like, oh, you know what? It can't be that because we we can't be the cause. We're we're the we're the healers. We we can't be the cause of this. We're not washing our hands. This is, this is ridiculous. The thing was is that if you look through his stuff, he had statistic evidence, but it didn't feel right to them, so they ignored it. And then 20, 30 years later, it actually started propagating. And the sad thing is about him, if I recall correctly, he ended up passing away in a mental institution like he it led to depression Jesus. he lost his family he lost everything and and he didn't even get to see how revered he would end up being so yeah i mean a part of it is the societal constraints and what we societal as in the people in the community of science and what they're they're thinking nowadays it isn't quite like that because we have stringent overseeing bodies that overlook research and guidelines and regulations into okay what is going to be accepted? What limitations do we have? What scope do we see on what we're going to accept as scientific research, which has evolved a ton in the past 200 years, which is another thing. I mean, like it's evolving. So we're evolving too. So what is uh, the current method? We're doing the best we can basically in, in all, not only in science, but in all fields, all forms, we're all doing the best we can with the knowledge we have. And then we have those titans that have created amazing theories and amazing things that we can build off of. And then we can choose to stand on the shoulders of those Titans and progress and move our society forward. So scientific knowledge is, is not a static thing. It's, it's a dynamic. We've talked about the misconception that science is only limited to this action, to these people and to these results, but the process, you know, processes are happening everywhere. It's happening inside our bodies. And we don't even like pay attention to it because we're so busy worried about whether or not they're going to have a new version of Game of Thrones that we like. I've never watched that stupid show. I haven't ever. either. Okay, I'm glad yeah, I'm not I, the only one. <laughs> I don't care. But it's like there's all these other ephemeral things that that are happening that uh, I think take us away from the reality that there is science happening all there's scientific things happening all around us and again not just medically biologically physically whatever there's a there's a science that's forming our society yeah. in the way mm. that that it is why and, do these things affect us so much like why is game of thrones so attractive to right maybe that maybe yeah. that might be worth some scientific study yeah, and just because like <laughs> people might feel that it's not having an effect on their lives. I mean, that's just a feeling like we can go through and we can technically do studies and, and statistics and, and look at trends. This reminds me of what happened when I first started making my medical device for sleep paralysis. 
I suffer from it in a certain way. Mm. I have this like confusional arousal, which means I'll wake up. And even though I've been suffering from this for over 30 years, every time I wake up, it's like the first time it's happening. I'm disoriented. I don't know where I am. Everything's like, what the heck's going on? My brain is awake, but my body is paralyzed. I cannot move. You know, you see those memes and whatnot, like, oh, my sleep paralysis demon and I were having a conversation the other day and just all fun and games. But for me, it's like, I, I, I wake up, I'm disoriented. I have no idea why I can't move. I, and I feel like if I, and I can feel my brain like, okay, we're going to fall back asleep. But in this panic, I'm just saying, oh no, if, if I fall back asleep, I'm going to die. The only thing that's going to save me from existential nothingness is maintaining my consciousness. And I'm just, I'm fighting, I'm doing, trying to activate every single neuron I have to move a finger and try to make my body move. And so I thought everybody suffered the same way I did. I was so wrong. So I start, I go and I make this medical device and my, with my team and my, the engineers are carrying this idea I had and I'm the medical and business side of it. And we're all making this together. And then I go and I start promoting it and I start talking to people online and I found a Facebook group. Maybe my first mistake was going on to Facebook. I don't know, <laughs> but I found a Facebook group and it's just it, it, the title of it at the time was just sleep paralysis. Okay. So I say, Hey guys. I'm, I'm wanting your guys' opinions because I want to see what the the pop. And I actually got what I was looking for from there. I was trying to see what different segments of people think about this disorder. And I was saying, hey, so I know we all go, and this is my naivety at the time. I know we all suffer through this. And, I, and so I'm working on something to help stop this from happening. I was torn apart by the online community. They, this particular group, a big chunk of them hated the idea because what I didn't know is that there is a significant portion of the sleep paralysis population. They don't have the confusional arousal. They wake up from their sleep, but their body's paralyzed. And for those who don't know what the reason why our, everybody does this, when we go to sleep, we become paralyzed. It's so that we don't like become Jackie Chan or Chuck Norris in our sleep <laughs> and act out our dreams when we're fighting people or whatever. So that helps us be able to, whenever we're going through whatever training session or whatever we're going through in our brain during dream time, our bodies don't act those out. There's a disconnect in some of us like me, GABA receptors and whatnot, brain wakes up, body is still paralyzed. We have like this lucid, whatever, and like, oh my gosh, what's going on? But for a significant portion of people, they're completely zoned in they're conscious they know what's going oh huh sleep paralysis and for a lot of people like oh okay well i'll just go back to sleep and it's nothing to them and then for another group of people they feel and they say that they can astral project and that they're able to be in like a lucid dream kind of a, a dream state in which they're able to manipulate their dreams mm -hmm. and some people believe that this is them actually into interacting with an astral plane and they can interact with each other and other people are just like, oh, I'm just manipulating my dreams. I'm able to kind of like uh, make my own movie and, and have my own special effects. It's awesome. So they, they love it. And so a whole bunch of people are saying how I had people sending me messages saying, how dare you try to take this gift away from us? Uh, one person was claiming hmm. that I worked for the government and I was wanting to put chips into their brains <laughs> and, and uh, it was all, it's all a big scheme. And I worked for Bill Gates and everything. Oh my God. So I got that too. But yeah, Jeez. but it, what it did for Whatever. me right there. It was so important. I realized that I was 
suffering from my own confirmation bias, my own life. Mm -hmm. And um, we're still looking into it. I, 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 there isn't data right now. And I hope someday in the future we can get that or, or I can help get that. Wherein we see what percentage of the population who suffers from disorders like this, that it is like what number of them are like me or what number of them are like the, the people who don't have the confusional arousal. And what if I'm the minority report? What if it's only like 3% of people have mm. it as bad as you do? And the, it, it's, it's, it's a panic attack and it's horrible. It's only 3% of people. Everybody else is like, oh, whatever. I was assuming that everybody else saw life and saw things the way I saw them. And I think in general, that's all of us. We all see. Right. Things. No, that's everybody. We all have. And yeah, that's the reason I'm, I'm giving that example uh, <laughs> is, is it, tie, it, it ties in. I promise. Uh, mm -hmm. We we all go through. We all have our lives. We all and, and we feel certain things, but we're not stupid. So many people that we meet people with differing philosophies on life. And a lot of times like, how could you think that way? But what you don't know is the the accumulated years and experiences that led these people to have the the opinions and the philosophies that they have that led up to that point in their lives. And so if you're not using a scientific mindset of, okay, let's think this logically. Let's what is to am I the outlier? What what's actually going on? What's the facts? What's the reality? If we're not thinking that way, then like my feel it must be true because I feel it's true at the time. I felt that everybody must who has sleep paralysis must be suffering the way I'm suffering. I was wrong. Hmm. Just because I felt one way doesn't mean that it's true. And now I don't know anything about that. And I love that quote. Like the more I, the more I learn, the more I find I know nothing. The philosophy. The there, yeah. There was a yeah. philosopher who said, I only know that I know nothing or exactly, whatever. Yeah. It was like Socrates or Plato or something. Yeah. Like one of the, one of the famous stupid. ones. I don't know who said right. it, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it, it's so true though. And all of us suffer from that, that confirmation bias, like, oh, okay. So I feel one way I see things one way, but you don't see the other side of the coin. That's one of the huge important things that science does and tries to do is say, okay, we need to look at the entire population. When you look at an, every segment, and then see how they all form together. Every single perspective and opinion and philosophy is a piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. And that's what science is trying to find. And that helps me see how important it is to look at statistics and look at things like that. And and, and how uh, you have to use the, the correct measuring tools. We can't take things at face value. And if we can rely on sound scientific processes, then we can start seeing what the truth is and also realize that sometimes the the tools that we have need to evolve still. Mm -hmm. Like we were talking before, science is not static. We're mm -hmm. still progressing. On that note, I'd like to talk about science information. When we talk about confirmation bias, when I first heard about it, I asked myself the question, have I been doing this? Is that yeah. why I, is that, you know, is that why yeah. I think I'm right all the damn time? And, <laughs> because, you know, as long as you agree with me, okay, then I must be right. So <laughs> where are we getting our information from the credible and reliable sources for science-based knowledge and, and information? Now, I want to talk about, there's a study that was done. Oh my goodness. The idea that somehow ivermectin was a, what's the word I want to use? Viable treatment? Yes, thank you. 
<laughs> was a viable treatment for COVID-19. It was an Egyptian study. And you know what? Oh, let me pull it up here. In the year 2021, a gentleman by the name of Jack Lawrence picked apart this study of COVID-19, which was an Egyptian study that somehow studied uh, ivermectin as a, like Joseph said, a viable treatment for COVID-19. Well, Mr. Lawrence found a number of inconsistencies with that study. Among the, some of the inconsistencies that he found was plagiarism. There was a, there was a number of plagiarized information. And he even points out on his website what the plagiarism is that took place in that study. He says there were a number of unethical things that took place in the study, one of them being poor research design. Dates were wrong, everything. There was so much misinformation, not misinformation, but ill-gathered information, a lot of inconsistent information, bad findings, something with the control groups as well. And I guess... And for those who don't know, a control group is what they, a science group will use to compare the group that they're actually doing tests on. So there'll be a, a group that is unaffected and the group that is affected. And the control group is the unaffected group that they're observing to have a, a baseline to compare. So they studied, and I hope you will help me with this. They published a preprint of mm -hmm. the... Uh, could yes. you explain to us what a preprint is? The preprint is what goes out when you are in the process of getting peer-reviewed. And for those who don't know what a peer review is, it's a very long and sometimes disheartening process for the research team. The preprint is something that people, I don't know, they advertise and they, they maybe they put in their CVs or whatever while it's in limbo getting reviewed. I could go right now, type out whatever I want. I could talk about how Pluto is still a planet and just make up some, some mumbo jumbo science and just put it in, but like have it formatted exactly like a publication would look like and then put it up online and then just say, that's a preprint. It means that it's not been peer reviewed. Nobody's verified it. Those are just the ideas of a person or a team of people who came up with something. It is completely unverifiable. Basically, that is what happened with this Egyptian study is that once the inconsistencies of the study were discovered by the, Mr. Lawrence, the preprint was pulled. But what ended up happening unfortunately, was that there were about, from what I read, there was about 30 or so sources that had already cited that study. I know, I know. Yeah. They had already <laughs> cited that study. Politicians don't know crap yeah. about science. You know? <laughs> yeah, that reminds me of when, uh, when 4chan was doing their things, and then you see all these people in the news. Who is anonymous? Who is he? What is anonymous trying to do? <laughs> and it just, it came out super cringy because like, you have no idea what you're talking about. If you're going to be talking about something, you should either have like experts on your team inform you of what's actually going on or don't talk about it and don't pretend that you know what you're talking about. Right. And, and I know that's, it's easier said than done. I mean, right. all of us do that. All of us like, oh, but I know about this. No, you don't. <laughs> I do well, it all the time. Yeah. Right. No, no, no. I, I, I get what, I'll get, I get what you're saying. 
But like I said, there were already people who had cited that particular yeah. study. So that information was incorporated into their research and those findings. And somehow it slipped. And so it got to be that ivermectin was somehow this effective treatment against COVID-19. People were prescribing it. But do you remember like the early 90s with Jenny McCarthy? Um, no. She was talking about how uh, it was a, like a, a certain medication or something. I, I forget the details now. But she was saying that she knew what caused like autism. And people being on the spectrum. Oh no! I never, based I never off, heard this. And it was just based off of this guy's opinions. And even the the researcher, who who later said he he said, "Oh yeah, all of that stuff was a fake. It was it was a lie. It wasn't." It. <laughs> but it goes out into the public. It goes mm-hmm. out into the gen pop. And mm-hmm. then this is a clear example of science intersecting with our lives. Mm-hmm. And then people go and they start basing these opinions, just like you're saying with this uh, ivermectin study people say oh but my my senator my the politicians uh the president of the united states they're saying that these are viable things and that's because they they were they jumped into the scientific field but they didn't know all the ins and outs and so they got something that wasn't real evidence and started saying hey this is actual evidence and influencing people to act a certain way science exactly. does affect our and then that led to the whole 2020 2021 thing of uh, oh we've been friends for 20 years I'm ending our friendship because you got vaccinated. Oh, geez. How dare you? You yeah. wear a mask? Oh, no. And no. so, I mean, yeah, just uh, people, the, the divide happened. And it's a lot of it was things like this. People grabbing a preprint, not understanding what it actually is. And, oh, this is it. We found it. The smoking gun. Right. COVID is dead. <laughs> they're, they're lying to us. I read somewhere... This would, I made a really good. I wish I knew where I'd, I'd read it from. But one of the big problems, not just the fact that ivermectin, you know, even the manufacturer of ivermectin, which is Merck, said we cannot find that ivermectin is an effective treatment against COVID nineteen. And like you said, I mean, it's just it's too late by that time. So it's gotten there. Yeah, and then when the scientists go and try to correct it and say, "Oh no, the thing is, it's not a preprint." I mean, these are all jargon terms. And like, right, right, right. Nobody that. knows what the hell that means. Yeah, what right. are you talking about? Right. So then what it translates to, and the thing is that the public, I don't think the public is wrong in thinking this because we have tons of evidence of things in the past decade, recent, I mean, decades ago, but still recent of like, oh, okay, the scientists were lying to us and they were experimenting on the people. I mean, the, the black community has a huge yeah. history of, of yeah, yeah, yeah. why they have a legitimate reason why they have a fear of trusting right. thing. And so all of a sudden they say like, oh, no, 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 no. Ivermectin is not a viable treatment. And here's why. Like, no, 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 no. I read the paper. The paper said it was. You guys are lying to us. Oh, my right. gosh. They're, they are now editing. This is straight out of 1984. We came here to <laughs> protest the East Country. <laughs> And now they're saying it's actually the South Country who was our enemies the entire time. No, no, no. I'm I'm smarter than that. I know what you're doing. It's like, no, no. The thing is, you were misinformed from the get-go. However, I understand why some people are like, oh, no, this is horrible. I, right. I don't blame people. That's what I'm trying to say. It's it's understandable. One of the things, this is, I remember what I was, what I was going to say earlier from what I read from, again, I wish I knew where, I, where I'd read this from, where one of the big problems with ivermectin was... There was ne- never a recommended dosage for what would be an effective treatment against that's COVID-19. kind of important. 
people were putting it in shakes. People were putting it in sandwiches. People, I mean, <laughs> people were just ingesting it, and it would have these really oh, nasty, mm-hmm. you know, psychological side effects on people. So we have these pools of not just websites that have misinformation, but what we call echo chambers mm-hmm. of misinformation within social media, which is another discussion altogether. You know, yeah, like I, I personally, I, I don't like Twitter. I don't like Facebook, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I do because I try to use it to not create an echo chamber. Mm-hmm. There are so many times that I will get a notification from Twitter, like so and so tweeted this. And it's from something that is the complete opposite of what I believe in. And I roll my eyes like, I don't believe they would think this. But then the reason I get those notifications is because I'm constantly looking at the opposite of what I believe in. I want to see why people think what's their background. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, there's a way to use it, but. Right. No, I understand. I understand what you're saying. So we just have to be mindful of that, especially in this age of instant information. It gives way to a lot of pseudoscience and misinformation and disinformation. So now that we've discussed all of this and we're thinking, okay, great. So you're talking about all this, what for? Which brings us to the purpose of this podcast. (laughs) You know, I know we've had a lively discussion, but, you know, we really want to hinted at the purpose. (laughs) Right. We've hinted at the purpose. But now let's talk about the actual purpose of the podcast. And like we said, we want to discuss different scientific concepts in hopefully relatable terms with guests and experts who specialize in the topics that we bring up and help enhance all of our understanding. Joseph, he's a researcher. He is a scientist. I can talk to him about X, Y, Z, you know, maybe these particular topics. We want to provide relatable data and useful scientific information in any number of fields, whether it's medicine, academia, we talked about a little bit about that, research, and relate some of that science-based methodology to topics such as health, such as medicine, money, economics, crime, information, distribution, climate, whatever. Because like we told you, it's all around us. All these things are happening all around us. And we also want to critique institutionalized research. You know, we don't want to run the risk of becoming the religion of science. Fanboys. We have to understand that just as much as that there is good science, there's also a lot of bad science. There's a lot of bad processes that, you know, that go on out there. And as, as I'm sure Joseph can attest to that, you know, a lot of that is just money. You know, I want my grant. I want my this. I want my that. So many, so many good projects just aren't sexy enough so they don't get the grant money that they deserve. Yeah. So... We're going to look at not just that, we're also going to look at how laws and legislation affect scientific studies and findings, pet projects, that kind of thing. Also, break down the process of research and provide a greater understanding of what effect that research and its results has on the on the public. So hopefully we will be able to grab all these topics and all these questions and be able to provide some kind of relatable understanding to our listeners and help them not be afraid of science and maybe help them with just not convince them of anything, but maybe to help them grow in their thinking so they don't have to feel disconnected by what's happening around them. I'm very lucky 
I'm to be partnered with Joseph on this because he obviously has experience in in this field where I I can only ask questions to understand. So I hope that you will continue to join us. I hope that this conversation was not too boring for you because I enjoyed it. So I mean, <laughs> I know it was long. It was longer than I than I had wanted it to be, but it really was. Uh, you know, it was a lot of fun, and I hope you had fun too, Joseph. Yeah, it was a great conversation. I felt like it it set the stage for a lot of future conversations that we're going to dive into. And looking forward to your your leadership in this conversation and facilitating these discussions, and also for our future guests. It's going to be a fantastic opportunity. I look forward to being on this ride along with all of you. Well, yeah, me too. I really am looking forward. So thank you very much, everyone, for joining us and for listening to us. I sincerely hope that you will join us for our next episode. So until then, please take excellent care of yourselves and have a great one. Bye-bye. Bye. Today's episode was written by Jacob Drueda and Joseph Errington. Music and production was by Jacob Drueda. Join us next time for another episode of Where Science Meets Life.